Welcome back to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And this week is another special episode. We are gearing up for October, which, if you haven't heard, is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. As a bonus, we're coming at you with a new episode every week this entire month. Yes, it's going to be super exciting. So today, this week, the last week of September, in preparation... We have a highlights reel, so we will be revisiting some of our favorite moments from the year thus far. So, without further ado, many of our illustrious guests. Um, it's been in the news a lot. We've talked about Russian disinformation through our own research. Um, we are now also, as a country, talking about um, Huawei switches for 5G networks and sensitivities there and vulnerabilities. And I would say in general, it feels like we, the country that um, invented social media and kind of innovated around internet technology have been caught on the back foot, as it were, about preparing for these new types of threats. Feels like um, with Iraq and Afghanistan that we have spent the last 20 years essentially fighting conventional warfare. And now even when we discuss either nation state actors or cybersecurity in general, we talk about sort of hard hacks, hacking the grid. I feel like we're stuck in like 1998 and we're, <laughs> we're just have been left behind in terms of thinking about this in the right way. I like how you framed up the problem, George. I think here's here's how I would put it. It's much easier to to set a red line. It's much easier to respond to cyber attacks that have a kinetic or a real world component to them, right? Hacking the power grid. Well, you can hack the power grid or you can drop a bomb on the power grid. You still need to figure out how to respond, right? So those have been much more concrete areas for U.S. policymakers, for the U.S. government, for the Department of Defense. What's happened and where where I think you rightfully pick up on this um, sort of left on our uh, left on our back foot or, or a little bit behind is in this broader information sphere that has a psychological component to it. And when you look back to what Russia, for instance, um, planned out for years, but a, a bunch of other countries too, including Iran, they saw that the ability to manipulate public opinion wasn't a um, distinct area of cybersecurity. It was very much a twin pillar of how the internet could be used and would be used. And they were willing to invest uh, with with a very different government structure, right? They're very, very willing to invest in how to think about and deal in that psychological realm, how to put down dissent in, in their own countries, um, how to change uh, political dynamics in, in other countries to make it difficult to respond. So these psychological... Uh, um, weapons and environments where where other countries have felt very comfortable dealing over the last four, five, six years in particular uh, are places where we're only now or a tool that we're only now in the U.S. Um, grappling with in a, in a more systematic way. The hard part here is we have a very uh, – uh, 
alive tech sector, we have a very distinct kind of public dialogue from what happens in the government. And and rightfully so. We're we're built on on the distinction that the government doesn't get involved um in in corporate policy and the government doesn't get involved in in um freedom of speech issues, right? Besides to preserve freedom of speech. So at this point I think our goal needs to be, particularly in the US, for companies, for people to understand that the information environment that they're dealing in, whether that's their newsfeed or whether that's how they think about threats to their corporate network and, and their employees, is much broader and much um, more complex than just will someone hack our corporate network or is someone going to steal my credit card online? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, yeah, and I think we're moving here from understanding there are certain um, geopolitical events. There are countries looking to use uh, information warfare to disrupt. There are also those seeking, um, as we saw way back with APT1, nation states also using it to actively steal information in order to get um, some economic benefit out of us. And so recently I think we've seen a – um, uh, confluence of these events uh, with the report that McAfee released last year with Operation Sharpshooter, right? We saw what appears to be, and not hard attributed to nation state actors using social media to also exfiltrate. So we're seeing this constantly evolving threat landscape. Can you give us a little historical context? I mean, as somebody who first wrote about APT1, how you see this uh, this evolution? Mm-hmm. So intellectual property theft or, or, or hacking research and development from companies is something that was has been taking place for, for now, you know, over 10 years, right? And we have good proof points behind that. And in 2013 was really the year when hacking of IP, economic espionage uh, by the Chinese military and the Chinese government came into high relief in in the public's eye. And and we did this attribution report back when I was at Mandiant called APT1, as you mentioned, George, um, that was foundational in in people understanding that there was a uh, designated military unit behind behind IP theft and behind hacking corporate networks. It doesn't feel like that that um, long ago, but at that time, the understanding that people were behind this, that militaries were putting money behind it, that um, corporate targets were going to be compromised, not just your standard kind of um, country-on-country espionage against diplomats mm-hmm. or military officials, right? This was going deep into the private sector. This was the energy industry, um, financial industry, pharmaceuticals, right? The the real bedrock of of the U.S. economy and and, and global and corporate multinationals. And um, by by 2013, when we really exposed the depth of this and the actor behind it, which which was China, um, what happened was companies started to wake up and see that this wasn't an IT department issue. This was a board level issue. This was existential, to put it in in kind of dramatic terms. But companies went out of business. I mean, Westinghouse yep. Nuclear went out of business. Um, solar the panels stakes are real. The stakes were real. Solar panels became real cheap by 2015. I wonder why, right? We'd seen solar companies hacked for years. Um, vaccines were becoming, um, you know, openly available and 
places where they never could be afforded before. Now, look, that's actually a good outcome, right. you know, <laughs> arguably of some of this. But the point was um, the 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 threat to corporations was very real and is very real. And uh, to, to kind of keep going down this historical arc, by 2015 and 2016, we had seen a very significant drop off in all of these different advanced persistent threat groups, these hacking mm-hmm. groups coming out of China. And the question became, you know, did that exposure combined with government action over the years, like like naming some of the Chinese military officials who were behind this. Did that work? Did hacking change? Are we just not seeing it now? What was that? What happened by 2015, 2016? And I I think the answer is we we were seeing a real retooling of how China was going to approach this issue. Costs had been imposed to to do this so openly to have thousands of people behind it, right? And and the US was really mad along with Britain and a in a you know a bunch of other countries. And uh, what sharpshooter what this what this report that came out in the end of 2018 um, that documents a different type of uh, compromise of, of corporations from likely Chinese actors. What this starts to show us and what it's a good example of is how over the last year or two, Chinese Chinese military and industry objectives must continue to be pursued, right? China still needs the the R&D. They still need um, the competitive advantage in a lot of cases to to propel their economy forward and their economy is very linked to national security. And what what Sharpshooter illustrates is that the – the way that you get into a company, the way that you hack corporate networks, and the way that you conduct economic espionage needed to change and it needed to look different. In this case, the vector was completely different. Spear phishing, sending an email out to a company was by far for years the way that that these different groups got into corporate networks. Well, what we saw with Sharpshooter was a much more indirect and kind of thoughtful and more insidious way to do this, which was go into LinkedIn, go into a social network and drop a suspicious link, which doesn't look very suspicious to the to the target. Right. And they download that link. Maybe it says job description here in the case of Sharpshooter. Right. And suddenly they're sitting there on their work computer having checked LinkedIn and guess what? Yeah. And we we saw that also in uh, recently and at the end of the year, um, I think a group that looked a lot like the Lazarus group, uh, but it was confirmed to be North Korea had essentially done the same thing to an employee at uh, Red Bank, which is the entire ATM network of Chile and essentially got access to the full ATM network. But it was a a mid-level software developer answered an ad on LinkedIn, did a full Skype interview, had to download like application loader.exe and ran it. And there it went. Yep. Something I've been thinking about a little bit in terms of uh, kids who have grown up in technology. This has always been a part of your life. You've always been able to say, right, Google this. Yeah. Right. So do you ever get onto topics of educating peers about things like cyberbullying as it relates to cybersecurity? And how how do you think about that topic? How do your peers think about cyberbullying and the concept of cybersecurity? Yeah. So what's really interesting is that we actually build curriculum based on the grade level of the students. So we have different curriculum for K through five versus six through eight and then high school. So our six through eight curriculum actually focuses a lot on social media and the impacts in 
and effects of it. And also the cyberbullying piece of digital citizenship and Googling yourself, knowing what's available online and treating others with respect, regardless of your perspectives on the world and on politics and things like that. So um, we do focus on that, especially because this is the first time that they're experiencing those things online. Um, The thing I would say about what I've experienced growing up in the age and how middle schoolers, I guess, see cyberbullying is that it's so relevant and pervasive and it happens in every classroom, whether or not people say that they're being cyberbullied or not. So it's important to provide the curriculum, whether or not it seems like nobody's talking about it already. Right. Yeah. And for something like social media, where it's very, I think it's more driven by image conversation mm-hmm. and communication rather than uh, words and text. Right. Yeah. Is that does that also shape your understanding of cybersecurity as it relates to images versus text in those different channels? Yeah, well, I think that young people right now are growing up um, in a very image-based perspective and way where um, it's sort of shaping the way that we socialize and interact with others because um, one thing that I'm learning growing up still is how perception isn't exactly reality all the time and an Instagram post doesn't really represent how someone's life might be outside of their feed. So, um, So it's learning to separate reality from social media is definitely a challenge and something that uh, I guess parallels cybersecurity in that cybersecurity are the skills that you'll always need, but it's also how is social media affecting the classroom? Because that's really the change we need to understand in order to truly understand how students are using social media, how it's affecting their brains um, and behaviors, and then tailor cyber curriculum for that. So for our listeners, you've written a book about uh, the challenge that marketers face in a fake news era. Um, and it's a smart analysis. And I think the consensus uh, between Ashley and I when we were reading it is that it's it's time to adapt. That's sort of the theme. Um, and as you put it, uh, quote, personal, corporate and brand issues have begun to blur into one another, end quote. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean there by this blurring of uh, roles? Sure. And it, it really gets to this notion of, um, you know, there, there was a time where there were kind of distinctions between um, a, a particular product brand and what it does or doesn't do and how it performs and so forth. And the reputation of the company it sits within and separate yet again from, you know, the individuals that, that run that organization. So, you know, it might be that the CFO of company X is, you know, gotten into some trouble because of his taxes or something or other, uh, but didn't really, you know, affect much about the product and whether or not it would, you know, face challenges at the, you know, the store shelf or the overall reputation of the company. But these days with, you know, the sort of ubiquity of social media, the instant accessibility of information um, and this climate of sort of loss of trust and skepticism and sense of kind of, just call it fear. Um, those things have really started to blend to the point where, you know, if the CEO is caught on video screaming at a taxi driver, um, that has an effect on the perceptions of the company. And when the CEO of, you know, uh, KB Homes 
is recorded screaming, you know, in foul language at his neighbor about a dispute about, you know, noisy kids, uh, that goes viral. And news commentators say, wow, do you want to buy a home from this guy? Where, you know, what in, in logical terms, the benefits of that particular house really don't have much to do with how that CEO behaves in his backyard on a Sunday afternoon. But those things all become conflated um, so that, you know, as goes uh, the executive or the reputation of the company as an institution. Um, that all sort of has an effect on the brand as we think about it in a traditional marketing sense and how consumers then may feel about it uh, and how they may vote with their with their wallets. So yeah, I think that challenge um, is yeah, it's sort of twofold. It's not just the fragmentation um, and the portability of these channels, right? So for example, the CEO gets angry at somebody and starts screaming on the lawn and, and he is uh, in that moment unaware of people whipping out their phones, but it's also the fact that the technology then accelerates it very quickly. Yes, Not only is it easier absolutely. to get out there, it's easy to, to put jet fuel behind it and, and get it That's out exactly there. Exactly right. And, and somebody with an axe to grind can then amplify it, you know, um, purposefully um, so that, you know, even beyond its own sort of intrinsically viral nature, um, people who have an agenda to further a cause or an issue or, you know, who already have, you know, um, an agenda with that company or that person can then make hay out of that and becomes fodder. Um, you know, and you see both consumers as well as other interest groups get very savvy about how to do that. And, you know, for example, when Sean Hannity was, uh, saying things that people found objectionable about the Parkland kids, Mm -hmm. um, you saw, you know, people rise up and say, hey, you know, advertiser, Keurig, for example, what are you doing advertising on Hannity when he's saying these horrible things? Um, you know, we'll boycott you if you don't get off his program. So they get off the program. Then the Hannity fans rise up and start smashing <laughs> right. and blowing up their Keurig machines. Um, so, you know, so there's sort of a, a series of, of accelerating, amplifying, you know, events that, that can happen that just put brands in the crosshairs of these issues. Uh, just about every week there's a new report on either an APT group or some instance of, uh, ransomware or IP theft. And yet i I find that when we go to talk to potential clients or customers, we still seem to be in a world where quote unquote proactive cybersecurity does not seem to be getting a lot of traction. Right. So we we see that people aren't really able to secure budgets unless they have a a data breach that they can point to or something tangible to say, this is why we need budget. So we like the idea of proactive cybersecurity, but we can't really get the funds until we prove that we need it. But if we're doing our job well, they don't have anything to report. So what do you think it's going to take to shift business culture to to get to that proactive mindset? The problem we security people have is that when we do our work right, nothing happens, (laughs) which is, (laughs) it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit hard to prove what you're doing. And I I, I run into this regularly myself as I go and meet with our, 
uh, clients and customers. Very typically, we have a meeting with the leadership team, and typically it's the CFO who who picks up the budget and looks at the numbers, and then asks me nasty questions about, "Hey, we we spend all this money every year into buying your security goods and services. Why do we spend all this money on you guys? Like we have no security problems." <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yes, you're right, and I typically, you know, look around their meeting room, pointing out how nice and clean and tidy it is and that means you can now fire your janitors and cleaners because you don't need them anymore <laughs> that's right good, good point that's good, good. <laughs> but it is a very real problem companies they react when something bad happens i i always keep saying that today every company is a software company and if that really is true that would implicate that Software security and cybersecurity and, and, and social media security should be a board level topic. And, and I can tell you that right now it's not. Companies only think about this. They only bring in a CISO to a board level meeting to do a briefing when something has happened, or maybe when something really big is in the news, like WannaCry or something like that. And that's just not good enough. We we must get out of the world where we only start building defenses after we run into a breach. It's like buying a fire insurance to your house after the house has burnt down. Right. <laughs> well, and I think, um, you know, a very contemporary example of this uh, idea of everyone being a software company would be Norsk Hydro, right? I mean, this is oh, yeah. a, mm-hmm. this is by all accounts, if you were talking to investors, stock analysts, this is a aluminum manufacturing company. And yet mm-hmm. this was uh, a ransomware that spread so quickly through its systems that it was able to shut down physical plants. Um, mm-hmm. And we just had a, a, there was also a hack on, um, a Saudi oil refinery that specifically mm-hmm. targeted safety systems. Um, so that was a little bit more malicious than than just looking for money. But yes, I think this is an interesting thought that every company needs to think of itself in some capacity as, as a software company. Sure, sure. You you think about any product. I don't know, cars. Like what are cars today? Yes, computer with wheels. Of, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Or I don't know, a hotel, hotel chain. The, the success between an unsuccessful hotel chain and successful hotel chain is how good the chain is in digitalization. Every company is a software company. So this really isn't just something we keep repeating. This is a very real example on what's happening around you know, everywhere around us. Digitalization is changing the world. And this does mean that we have to take online security and online safety more and more, more and more seriously. Yes. And I think if we, let me extend that a little bit. So we're talking about extended digitalization, digital transformation by any other name. So we have on the horizon, the big topic of the day, which is 5G, right? So 5G promises a lot both good and ill. Um, so in, so I don't want to get too far down the path of predictions, but in terms of cybersecurity, you know, is 5G going to just unleash a series of botnet attacks? I mean, we're talking about a network that may have virtually no lag and mm-hmm. we have more devices than ever connected to one another. Um, mm-hmm. What are the implications of that? Well, as a transport layer, it's like any other transport layer. The, the attacks themselves don't really typically matter on, on how do you distribute it, whether it's you know 2G, 3G, 4G, or any other network protocol. However, 
it, it does have massively large bandwidth. You can download a 4K movie in two seconds over over a good working 5G connection, which is just remarkable. Um, of course, that means that, for example, botnet attacks ha- have much more bandwidth to their disposal. But I think the real thing about 5G, which is going to hit us when it becomes commonplace, is the fact that as IoT devices are going to become more and more um, applying to not just smart things, but also stupid things. Home appliances where the connectivity is not about bringing more features to the consumer, but more about collecting data to the manufacturers. 5G and other uh, new transfer protocols, for example, Sigfox protocol, means that the end user has no way of knowing which of the devices in his home are online. The reason they are online is not because of a feature to the consumer, so they don't need to tell the consumer that this thing is calling home, and the consumer can't block them from going to the internet because they are not going to the internet through the consumer's Wi-Fi. He can't mm-hmm. block them at the router. He can't just not tell the password to the toaster. The toaster will not need your password. It's going to go online with 5G or Sigfox 2 or you know Zigbee 3 or whatever new protocol we are designing right, right now. And, and this is the thing that's going to bring this massive uh, IoT revolution really to our homes. It's not about the smart devices. With smart devices, you know that this smart TV that I bought, it's on the internet. You bought it because it's on the internet because mm-hmm. you want to watch net- Netflix on your TV. But then when devices where you have no idea that they are actually on the internet are starting calling home, that's where we have the real problems. Yeah, I think we've noticed... Um you know, a number of FTC cases have been brought forward uh, regarding the lack of disclosure about sponsorship. And that actually started sort of the first big case that I think got a lot of attention was related to Kim Kardashian and and diet supplements. But there was an Mm -hmm. article in the New York Times in May about uh, Juveau, which is a Botox competitor, had hosted uh, a party in in Cancun with a bunch of plastic surgeon influencers who also did not necessarily disclose when or whether a post was um, sponsored, which is... I think less murky um, in terms of knowing what should and shouldn't be sponsored. But we did notice that you have included sort of an additional layer of transparency and have articulated when posts aren't sponsored. Um, Do you see a a role for clearly delineating both types of posts? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is really important because – you know, when we're thinking about our own clinical practices in real life, we're obligated to disclose these conflicts of interest and these industry relationships. And um, it's become such a big um, thing over the past several decades that has totally transformed how medicine is practiced and, you know, with the Sun- Sunshine Act and everything. So, um, you know, I think that currently it's loosely regulated online, but, um, but I think for our patients, they deserve to, they deserve to know if there are any sort of conflicts of interest so they can be best informed on, um, what the information, what the information, uh, really is about. Um, so yeah, I think that there are, and I know that there are federal trade commission regulations or recommendations on how to disclose 
sponsored posts. Um, but there's very little uh, actual enforcement. And plus, um, again, with industry relationships, there's pretty much no guidance as to what clinicians should be doing um, online or how to disclose that information properly. Yeah. So in, in your mission to establish these standards through the Association for uh, Healthcare Social Media, have you seen the topic gain greater traction at conferences? Are there now conferences dedicated to medical social media or maybe the association has its own? Um, have you seen larger industry gatherings um, congregating around the subject? I think so. I think that there has been um, increasing attention to all things social media. Um, our organization just launched less than two months ago, so it's very, very new. Um, but personally, there have been other medical societies that have approached me to speak at their conferences. Um, I know that certain organizations, one of our sponsoring organizations, the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, um, they recently, uh, their topic of the year is trust um, in uh, health information. And so um, I think that more and more organizations are uh, really picking up on the entire subject. And I think part of it isn't just driven by what's going on in health alone, but also kind of the whole idea of fake news and how that's been a uh, whole issue on on the political front over the past um, you know two three years. And you know we find that sometimes we're talking with security teams, sometimes we're talking with marketing teams. More often than not, marketing departments um, don't have that hat on. They don't see the world through the same uh, lens that security teams do because you straddle both of those worlds. Have, have you seen either your marketing colleagues or uh, marketing communities, has security become more uh, of a prominent topic or, or do you still see kind of a bifurcation between those two worlds? I would love to say that I would have this conversation and see it more with marketing professionals, but mm -hmm. I still see a lot of marketing professionals that the light bulb has not come on for them yet. And I should mention, I'm also a professor and I, I work with my students because I teach marketing and communications and it's something I ingrain into what they're doing because it will give them a leg up. Um, but even initially, most of them think, what do I have to be concerned about privacy for? I'm not, I have nothing to hide. Um, it's not going to impact me when I'm in the work world. They don't get it. Mm. And so I think it's not just students that are in that that uh, scenario, there are many, many marketing practitioners that just see that they have targets to hit and they're not thinking about the implications of privacy or security or how they're a first line of defense for the organization to help protect the organization and its assets and its IP. Yes, precisely. I mean, we, we um, would sing this till we're blue in the face, but if you consider that all, almost all marketing now, I mean, yes, there's still some offline, but so many of the marketing dollars have moved into the digital space, whether it's advertising or just direct engagement on social and we now see daily new phishing attacks, new hacks through social. That is the first line of defense. I mean, my personal sort of armchair psychology is that maybe, you know, marketing is more attractive to outgoing personalities versus, you know, systems engineers, which are looking at a problem and trying to study it from the inside. Um, but, uh, 
We are really hoping to see this inflection point because currently CMOs have more budget for technology stacks than CIOs or CISOs have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's just the unknown and not people still don't make that connection until it happens to them. Yes. It's like life insurance, right? right? <laughs> right. Why do I need it? I'm healthy. Right. But people have been better informed and better trained mm -hmm. to have life insurance. Right. We're not there yet with cybersecurity and privacy. Yeah. And it's interesting. We've, we've um, sold brand protection to companies and sometimes brand protection is under the auspice of cyber and sometimes it's under social governance, which kind of wraps up eventually into the, the CMO's remit. So it's interesting that even at like the world's leading companies, they still haven't decided who owns what or even how to how to collaborate. And I think it's a, I, I think every, every person in an organization has a role to play in cybersecurity. Wait, wait, I want, I want you to repeat that. Cause we just talked, we just, we talk about this all the time. It's everyone's responsibility. Everyone's responsibility is cybersecurity and privacy, mm -hmm. everyone. And again, we're not stressing that enough and people aren't making that connection. Our, our best defense in cybersecurity is that first line defense of our employees. Yes. We have to inform them. We have to train them. They have to know what to look for um, just because it's a, a hot topic and a, a cool, sexy sounding uh, link. Mm -hmm. Don't click on Protect it. Protect your people, secure your enterprise. Right. Right. Like the people are the new attack surface. Right. Turn our attention away from the technology arguments. There's also the end user. What do you see as the role of the end user in helping to manage this problem? Well, that's a very important question. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, because this is a problem that can only be uh, managed over time and can't be resolved with a snap of the fingers, um, there's a vital uh, role for the users uh, in all of these situations. I mean, people... Uh, first of all, need at a very general level to be uh, skeptical of what mm -hmm. they see uh, on social media. And uh, I've argued in the report that in order to remind people of the need for the skepticism, that the platforms ought to uh, do some more uh, social media literacy uh, education right on their sites, so that as you log in, you would you would see, uh, you know, perhaps a, a button you could click on that would remind you about the problem uh, of of false content and how it might manifest itself and so forth. Uh, at a, at a very specific level, I think the skeptical but still enthusiastic uh, user of social media uh, needs to think twice before uh, you know sharing that uh, item that may seem salacious, may seem fascinating, the kind of thing your friends would really like uh, to uh, to have a look at. But before you retweet it, is you know is it true? Is it is it, is it something that uh, you think would be a, a, a good idea for you know many people, hundreds of people, thousands of people to be um, slinging around uh, the internet, or, or is it likely uh, something that is you know misleading? And uh, I don't think it's too much uh, to ask people to ask that question um, as they uh, go about their rounds 
on various social media sites and uh, make decisions about what they're going to retweet and what they're going to share and so forth. Yeah, I think, uh, again, we live in a, a different world than the average lay user. And I, I'll get regularly get texts from friends and they'll share a tweet. And I'll be like, can you believe that these people live in this country? And I, I shoot back. I was like, mm-hmm there's like a 98% chance that that is entirely false. Like you just need to know that the anger and outrage you feel towards your fellow American is being implanted and actively encouraged by a foreign adversary. And I think that gives them a lot of pause, but it, it is almost a, a primal reaction, you know, cause it's just yeah. trading on anger. Well, yeah, they're tapping into your group tribalism. So they know that you feel passionately right. about one way. It's very easy to write a title, very misleading title about something that isn't true to get people uh, passionate enough to, to talk about it without mm-hmm. verifying the authenticity. Yeah, but I think I think that's helped at least give some of my friends pause. Like, no, it's not real. It's probably not real. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, and so I I thought it was particularly interesting that you had advocated that that literacy be embedded in um, the platforms themselves. I hadn't seen that before. I had seen um, a lot of the Baltic countries have critical thinking kind of sewn into the national education curriculum from kindergarten Mm -hmm. up through, because they've been dealing with this for the last 60 years. Um, It's not new to them. It's maybe a new medium, but the, the act of uh, trying to influence a society is not new. Have you seen any moves at the university level to address this in terms of just building up a critical thinking mindset or skill set for, for students? Uh, I haven't. Um, I think that as a general matter, unfortunately, um, universities, colleges, the uh, professors who uh, teach classes mm-hmm. um, at those institutions generally uh, see this whole world as being you know, kind of outside the the perimeter that they set up around uh, academic uh work. Um, but I think it is, uh, important enough, uh, that it, it absolutely ought to be integrated into, uh, into the curriculum. And, uh, it is something that I've begun to talk to, uh, people here at Stern about, and we'll, we'll see how much, uh, headway I'm able to make. I'm, I'm not a very senior person <laughs> on the academic side, so it's not like I have a lot of, uh, a lot of sway there, but we'll, uh, we'll see. Well, we, I would, I would cheer for you because I think the, it's just clear. I mean, you brought up perimeter, which is funny because it's a term we use often in cybersecurity that, and we'd say that there is no perimeter anymore, right? Because you mm-hmm. used to have these firewall controls around your network. Yeah. But you're now you're employees at the Starbucks on public Wi-Fi across the street doing whatever they want. You know, how is that a perimeter based system working for you right now? And so I would say the same. You have a cloistered academic setting in the classroom, but your students are still using social media, talking on it, organizing with it, you know, outside, inside campus walls, what have you. So, um, that is interesting. Yes. I, I champion that. Um, I, like also that the report calls out the war room mentality. You know, I when I was reading the report, I saw, and we have seen this in some of our research too, that they'll set up uh, war rooms weeks ahead of a, a, 
an election and there'll be lots of press around it being set up. And I was like, oh, weeks, this operation has been in place for three years. <laughs> like, what are you going to catch right. in the last few weeks that hasn't, if you've already changed minds, what's the point? Right. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, as I know in the report, I mean, there, the, the use of the war room sort of gesture is susceptible to being uh, just purely a, a PR stunt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one would hope that it it would be more than that, but it would that it would signal that uh, for far longer than the war room itself has existed or will exist, because they tend to take these things down um, once the election in question is over, um, that, it, that it signals uh, a new determination uh, on the part of these companies. But, you know, the, you know, you have to wait and see what the actual proof is. You're, you're of course, right that, that gathering uh, 30 people into a large conference room and putting lots and lots of monitors on the wall um, is not by itself going to... Uh, very much. Um, moreover, you know, if you want to use some recent examples, uh, the challenge gets more complicated when you a- ask what's actually going on on the ground. Um, in Brazil and India, uh, the main problem when they had presidential elections relatively recently, Brazil in late 2018 yep. and India in the spring of 2019, uh, you know, there, there actually wasn't anything really to monitor from a, a war room because a lot of the disinformation being exchanged in those elections was being um, shuttled around via WhatsApp, right. a, an encrypted, an encrypted uh, message service that even Facebook, which owns WhatsApp, uh, you know, is is unable to look in on. I mean, you, they, they they don't have the capacity, or at least they say they don't have the capacity, to look over the shoulder of WhatsApp users, um, and and see what's what's going on. So, it, it, the, the problem has convolutions within convolutions. It's very complicated, um, and uh, this is why uh, it, it's a a major undertaking that the companies uh, need to uh, need to do uh, to try to get their arms around this. Wow, how lucky are we that we get to talk to all of these amazing guests? I mean, it's a it's an honor and a privilege, and uh, we're we're really lucky, and we are very much looking forward to all of the guests that we have uh, this coming month in October. If you want to hear more about the events coming up, check out our homepage, safeguardcyber.com, to see the full schedule. Yep. Can't wait to see you there. As ever, thanks to Abby Bruce for our sound design and production and for Matias Zeffaletti for our theme music. Um, Until then, we will see you in October. Stay safe. Stay safe.